0: We started with uh, verses 10 last week. We didn't get to finish that section on uh, verses 13 through 16, so we'll pick up there in just a moment. Let's review what we did last week, just real briefly. We, uh, We said that our relationship with God determines our selection of a spouse. There are millions of women out there. If you're single, you can marry any of them you want as long as they're a believer. There's not just one for you until you marry her, and then there's just one for you. But until then, just choose. Use wisdom. And uh, some guys labor under the idea that, you know, God's got one woman for him. And when she hits him on the head with a two before, he'll know it. Uh, God uh, gives us wisdom to choose. And there may be multiple uh, options for some of you. Uh, some of you may have no options, uh, but you can have multiple options. And you're to make a wise decision and deal with everyone honorably. And then after you marry her, that's the one for you. Uh, so we, we, there's only, there are only a few things that we know for sure, and they're the things that are in the Bible. Everything else takes wisdom. You apply the Bible to life, and it's by inference rather than immediately, intuitively revealed to you. Your calling in Christ is revealed to you. The Bible is the revelation of God. Who you're supposed to marry is done by inference. So you use Christian wisdom. But our relationship with God does determine how we make that choice. We saw saw that God really does care about whom we marry. He makes that really, really clear. Uh, he says it's a, a bad deal. It's a sin against him. It's a violation of our covenant with God. It's a sin against the church, a contradiction to our faith, a detestable act and a desecration of worship. That's a pretty strong language uh, for us to marry someone who's not in the Lord if we're in the Lord. So we have to be equally yoked. Then we saw that God has told us Whom not to marry. And that would be the person who is not a believer. There are many uh, things we saw that go into choosing a spouse. All kinds of compatibilities. Physical, psychological, intellectual, social, occupational, recreational compatibility. But the most important compatibility is spiritual. We have to be soulmates. And uh, that uh, is given to us in the scriptures. Then we saw that God has warned us about the consequences of disobedience. He says, may the Lord... Cut him off, in verse 12, from the tents of Jacob, uh, whoever he may be, even though he brings offerings. So regardless of his position and regardless of his piety, uh, he's to be cut off. So that's pretty strong language, too, in the Old Testament. That is, there was excommunication uh, from the people of God for those who married uh, unbelievers. Then uh, we ask some questions. What do I do if I'm already married to an unbeliever? Well, acknowledge your sin. Secondly, love your spouse. Uh, Some of you feel as though that would be a contradiction in terms. How can I acknowledge that I made a mistake and then be completely devoted to my spouse? Well, that's called grace. Uh, You're you're humble enough to admit that you made your choice on uh, unbiblical grounds, and then you accept uh, in God's providence whatever discipline brings to you, and then you give yourself completely to your wife and make it the best marriage that it can be. That's the way you do it. then you teach others correctly, we said. So this is the, what you do if you're in a situation like that. And, of course, uh, if you were married as unbelievers and then you became a believer later, you say, what do I do with this unbelieving wife I've got? Love her. Uh, and Paul gives clear instructions on that in 1 Corinthians 7. You do not depart from an unbelieving spouse if one of you became a Christian after the marriage. We made some observations that uh, our dating practices have very little to do with the Scriptures. Oftentimes, And uh, that we need to do our dating in view of prospective marriage. The dating is not just recreational to flirt and to play with someone's uh, affections, which is often what goes on. But we said that we need to be sure that dating is strategic, that it's in view of a prospective marriage. Otherwise, we're just playing with fire and playing with someone else's heart. It's hardly love. And then uh, we notice that parents are probably not adequately engaged uh, in their children's dating lives. And on the other hand, some parents are unwisely pushy because they just want to be sure that the person gets married to the right so-and-so and and gets way too involved. We saw that uh, our dating in our day is largely driven by the felt needs of the one doing the dating rather than the needs of the other person and the presence of Christ. The two keys to your relationship before you're married and after you're married practice the presence of Christ and serve the other person. And most of the dating that goes on in our society, it does not practice the presence of Christ, nor does it look to enhance the welfare of the other person. It's only to meet our felt needs for romance. So that's, that's where we were last week. Let's pick up with verse 13 and let's read the verses 13 through 16. And we'll finish this up before we get into the next section. Another thing you do, says Malachi, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Okay, we see then that our relationship with God determines not only our choice of a spouse, but our relationship with our spouse. So your relationship with your spouse is going to be determined by your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's another reason why it's so important that we all get our relationship with God through Jesus Christ right today, because it's going to make a huge difference in your relationship with everybody, but especially the one who's living closest to you, your spouse. Those of you who are single, just take good notes, um, because uh, once we describe what our obligation is, then that determines also the kind of woman you want to marry, because you need to find a woman for whom you want to do the things that are required of us in the Scriptures. Uh, not just somebody you can have sex with, but someone you will want to serve, as we will see in the scriptures. So uh, this has a lot to do with it. It, uh, it shapes your heart. And then it also shapes the kind of person that you want to select as spouse. So if you're single, this has a lot to do with your life. And it also shows you the uh, end game of dating. Where is this all heading? And a lot of times I notice uh, guys will date too long before they break it off. And uh, as I think I mentioned last time in the larger catechism under uh, the Seventh Commandment, uh, one of the things that's considered a sin is dating too long. And a lot of times guys will uh, inadvertently, unwittingly, play with the affections of a woman. He enjoys something about the relationship, but he knows it's not going to end in marriage, but he keeps it going anyway. That's an abuse of that woman. So men need to be more decisive in a lot of cases. And You know, I would say... You know, you have several stages in a dating relationship. And, you know, the first stage is the first time you're with her. You know, is there some sort of chemistry there or not? And that doesn't mean you have to fall in love in the first sight. But is there an open door there to continue the relationship? Then you have another little point there after about two or three months. You spend a good amount of time together. And then after about six or nine months, if you're living in the same town or you're having regular contact, I mean, good heavens, you should know whether this thing is is really moving ahead or not. And to continue it on uh, is an abuse of the other person's affections. So our relationship with God will determine our relationship with our spouse. And it will also determine how we uh, deal with that woman before she becomes our spouse. Well, first of all, in verse 13, we'll see that our marital integrity affects our worship because he says you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings. Well, notice first of all that unfaithfulness in marriage makes for insincere worship. So, uh, when we are uh, not dealing with our wives correctly, then there is going to be a consequence uh, in our worship. That is, it's hypocritical and God knows it. And in this case, he did not accept their offerings. Sometimes, he doesn't accept our prayers and we don't even know it. You say, he doesn't accept our prayers. Isn't that a little harsh? Well, if you want to, you can turn to me to, to page uh, 2021 in your New Testament. Or 2020. 2020. 1 Peter 3 gives long instructions there for how wives should submit to their husbands. Good. Like that. Then you get to verse 7. and It's got just one little verse here for the husbands. We like it down and dirty. Here's what Peter says to us. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that what? Nothing will hinder your prayers. Uh, yike. So when I am inconsiderate, disrespectful, or uh, not taking her need for defense into account and not treating her as an heir of life, then my worship is hindered. So very much your relationship with other people affects your worship. Remember how Jesus put it. He said, if you're worshiping God and you're getting ready to put your gift on the on the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, just put your gift down right there on the floor. Go off and see your brother be reconciled to him. Then come back and offer your gift. So God makes it clear that human relationships are essential to sincere worship. We've got a lot of people in this world who are praising the Lord with great enthusiasm. And they think if they just try a little harder, dance a little harder, shout a little harder, sway a little bit more, lift those hands a little higher, God will surely be impressed with their zeal. He's not even listening. Because you're not treating your brother right. Or in this case, not treating your sister right. And uh, so very much so, even in the New Testament, this same principle that's revealed in the Old Testament is carried right on through. So, gentlemen, if you're not treating, I'm not saying you have a great marriage. I'm saying if you are not treating your wife correctly. Now, you can treat your wife correctly and still have a bad marriage. But uh, the the point about worship is what is your role in this? How are you dealing with her? Your your worship is not even getting through. Your prayers are not even getting through. And you'll notice in this first Peter three text, the, the unbelievable selection of words here. They're so contemporary, so relevant, being considerate, being respectful. The very things that a wife wants is for you to be considerate and uh, to show deference to her, show respect to her, show kindness, gentleness, being a gentle man. That's exactly what she wants. And that is loving her in her language by being considerate. And you say, well, she had a complaint about I put the bread on the table. Well, it seems to me that first Peter three seven says more than just put the bread on the table. It says considerate, respectful. And if you're considerate of your wife, you also realize she needs to be told quite regularly that you love her. You know, the guy who said, I told you 25 years ago that I loved you. And if it ever changes, I'll let you know. Uh, that's not being considerate. Uh, that's, that, may, that may work in your world. Knucklehead world uh, it doesn't work in a woman's world. And then and then uh, you have here that we're to treat them as the weaker partner. And I'm, I'm sorry if this sounds chauvinistic to some of you, but. It seems to me that medical studies still show that men are stronger than women are, by and large. Now, there are a lot of women who are stronger than I am. But, uh, but on the average, I'm stronger than a woman. And so my wife is the weaker partner. That says a ton. It says you don't use your physical strength to intimidate. You say, oh, I've never hit my wife. Yeah, but you've stood in the doorway and you've raised your voice and your face has gotten red and the veins popped out. That's called intimidation. And it's, it's immoral because she's weaker than you are. And you've, you've bullied her just by your size and by the language that you use. And it can be very intimidating. Uh, and you don't have to be six foot four and 250 pounds to intimidate. You can be scrawny like Robert Taylor and, uh, still (laughs) intimidate. Actually, he wishes he were scrawny. (laughs) Speaking of Taylor, uh, (laughs) He was out playing golf one day, and, and the, his partner died. And uh, he got to the funeral home, and the pastor said, you know, Robert, said, it must have been really terrible, you know, to have Fred die on you. And Robert said, yeah, it was on the ninth hole, and for the whole back nine, he was, hit the ball, drag Fred, hit the ball, drag Fred. <laughs> uh, you're going to have to give me some new golf jokes, Robert. I've told that one too many times. Uh So you see here what husbands are to be. We're to be the nurturing one. We're supposed to be protective. We're to take care of the weaker partner, physically weaker, but smarter usually. Uh, But we're to to care for them. So that's what it means that uh, back to our outline, that unfaithfulness in marriage makes for insincere worship. Uh, Other people may not know it's insincere. You may not even be aware of how insincere it is, but there is one who is aware and that's God. And so our worship and our prayers don't get through. Uh, secondly, active worship never compensates for unfaithfulness in marriage. So he's basically saying, look, dance as strong as you want to. Weep and wail, shout, make all the noise you want to. It still ain't getting through. So you can be very active in worship, and that doesn't compensate for being an unkind husband. Uh, it, there's not a formula there where you just want to be above 50, 51%. It's you, you want to be sincere in both. And if you are a sincere worshiper... It will work out in a sincere relationship with your wife. Now, I think I mentioned last time that there's a very important distinction when we're talking about marriage. And that is the difference between a a healthy marriage and a healthy husband in a marriage. Or there's a difference between a successful marriage and being successful in marriage. And you want to keep that distinction in your mind because you can't control your marriage. It takes two people, and then it takes, takes some elements even beyond the two people, doesn't it? So you can't control it. But you can control the husband part of it. And that's what you want to control. And then you're successful. Hosea was extraordinarily successful in a prostitute for a wife. But he was successful. And he's a lot more successful than I've been, and I have a great wife. So it's not having a successful marriage that is what you're shooting for. And this is where a lot of a lot of misunderstandings come in, especially in the more conservative Christian uh, denominations, where there's so much emphasis on marriage, it's almost been made the measure of the man. Well, the measure of the man is is how you're doing as a husband, not whether you have this great marriage. So don't get, don't get confused on that. And uh, let's remember that <clears throat> active worship will never compensate for our unfaithfulness in marriage. Secondly, in verse fourteen, we see that our marital integrity reveals our personal integrity. Ouch. For example, we display our long-term loyalty in friendships by how we deal with marriage. He says here, the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. So God is a witness to that relationship. It has a moral element to it in terms of just our faithfulness in relationships. So our marital integrity does reveal our personal integrity because it displays how we deal with long-term loyalty and friendships. I have a friend who is chairman of a department in a medical school, and uh, his partner got a divorce without biblical grounds. In other words, it was just incompatibility and they wanted out. And on one occasion, he asked my friend, what do you think about this? He said, well, honestly, uh, I think it it shows something really difficult in your character. What? What do you mean? Well, if if you deal with someone with whom you took a public vow, how would you deal with me as your business partner? You ever thought about that? Someone who will break a public solemn oath. Why wouldn't they break their deal with you? Well, let's talk about the difference between a contract and a covenant. Uh, you know, we all make business contracts. You have a contract, you know, on your house. If you have a mortgage, you have all kinds of contracts in business. And contracts are agreements between two parties. They're bilateral. And any contract in this country that I know of can be reneged, renegotiated. You can renegotiate anything. All you have to have is the agreement of the other party. I mean, I could have it signed and notarized and. Proved by the court and all kinds of agreements. But if both parties come back and say, we'd like to change the terms of this agreement, change the terms of the agreement, no matter how strong the agreement was. And there's nothing immoral about that. It's a contract. A covenant is an irrevocable relationship that even if both parties want out, you still don't get out because you didn't make a contract. You made a covenant. This is the difference. It's insoluble. And it is bound by solemn oaths. So you swear yourself, not just to the other party, you swear yourself to the covenant. And not only is the preacher and the congregation your witness, God is your witness. So now you have a covenant that is bound for life. Two parties, both of them committed to the covenant. It's not bilateral. It's unilateral. I'm making a commitment to the covenant regardless of what the other party does. She does the same thing. And it's a commitment to God every bit as much as it is a commitment to my spouse. So if I want out of it, if I want to renegotiate it, I not only go to my wife, I'd have to go to God. Say, God, would you be willing to break this? OK, so a covenant involves the Lord. And that's what was being forgotten by the Israelites. They were treating their marriage covenants as though they were contracts. Does this sound familiar? Uh, back about uh, three and a half years ago, uh, Amy Grant and Vince Gill, who two, two very famous musicians who got married, were on ABC's Primetime. And they had both divorced their spouses, their original spouses, and they kind of fallen in love with each other. And uh, they were explaining on ABC Primetime, you know, how difficult this was for them because they're both professing Christians. And, you know, they had this big struggle in life. What do I do to do I stick with the first commitment I made? Or do I go with my soulmate? They said. And Amy was asked, Well, what do you do? And she said, Well, I obviously made my choice. And, uh, and the uh, interviewer asked her, Well, do you believe in fate? And she said, Yeah, I guess I do. Well, there you have it fate. You just fall in love with somebody by fate. Fate determines, it's impersonal, it's, it hold, doesn't hold you responsible, it just kind of happens to you. A love is not something that happens to you. Love is something that you give to enter into a permanent relationship, either with God or with your spouse. And, and that is a picture of what has happened to the church today. We have all kinds of excuses. Some of you guys who are divorced are, are divorced on biblical grounds, and the Bible does give biblical grounds. Some of you were not. And at the time that you did, you probably made a bunch of stupid excuses. And it was based on a contract. And you thought that she had kind of dropped her into the deal, so you're just going to drop out yourself. You had it all figured out, quid pro quo, and as far as you were concerned, you're perfectly morally acceptable in your behavior. That's the way we think today. It's not the way the Bible thinks. And you can see how severe the Lord is in his concern about this issue, that we get this thing back. Because if we don't understand marriage covenant, what that reveals is you don't understand covenant with God either. That's the problem. It's a deep theological problem. When you have marriages flying apart that are non-covenantal, then it reveals that the people don't understand the relationship they've got with God, which is covenantal. can't be broken. And God says, okay, so that's the way you were dealing with me? By contract? Okay, the contract's over. If you want to be in covenant with me and you really understand covenant, then when you make a covenant, you'll live out your covenant just the way that I'm living out my covenant with you. So this is the kind of language that's being used here. He's saying you violated the covenant with me because you violated the covenant with your spouse. Now, we'll get to it in just a moment. What if I screwed up? What do I do? Maybe we should start with that. Because if you're like me, if there's no hope in this thing, why should I even listen to your ramblings, preacher? Uh, and there is hope for you. There is hope. Look, I've broken every commandment in the book. Every one of them. I have absolutely no right to be in covenant with God. I have no claims on heaven at all, except for one thing. I'm counting on Jesus to get me there. That's it. Period. End of paragraph. End of thesis. End of life. I've got one hope only. Jesus Christ. His blood is sufficient to cover for all my sins, and His righteousness is enough to give me a perfect record. That's how I'm getting there. How you getting there? You know, you you ain't got a prayer. You're wasting your time if you're trying any other way to get there. And this is just one more reason why. Cuz you screwed up your marriage. You you put into a covenant and you didn't abide by it. What defense do you have? What makes you think you could ever get to heaven? You got one hope, Jesus Christ. His blood that pays for your sins in your marriage and his righteousness that gives you a perfect record and it allows you to wake up at 5:30 in the morning and start all over. Praise the Lord. That's the only reason I'm in this business, because I can start all over, not only at 530 in the morning, but at 545 and 550 and 605. It's all the way through every day, every minute of the day. It's just constant. But how do you start over? You acknowledge your sin and your need of a savior. And you acknowledge his help, your need of his help to get going in the right direction. That's how you start all over. So if you don't, if you're sitting there being defensive like a little five-year-old blockhead that doesn't want to admit that you stole the cookie out of the cookie jar, how do you ever get started again? So that's the reason that we deal with the law and with guilt against the law, and then we just take that guilt and plop it right over here on Calvary and give it back to Jesus. It's His guilt. He was guilty on the cross. That's the tragedy. That's the sadness of the cross. Here's a perfect Savior who was completely guilty. Everybody put their crap all over Him. And that's what he took willingly. So I just take it. I just hang around and give it right back to him. But I have to acknowledge I have it. And then I transfer it over to him. So that's the reason we deal with all this stuff. It's not to make you feel miserable, it's to make you feel great. You now I got somewhere to go with this stuff. Now I can live an honest, transparent life. I can admit my failures and pick up at five thirty in the morning and get going again. Happily. Joyfully. Freely. Not with no guilt. That's exactly the outcome that we want from this. So let's deal with the harsh, brutal facts. That our marital integrity reveals our personal integrity, or we could put it another way, our marital lack of integrity reveals our personal lack of integrity. Secondly, under that, we display the strength of our partnerships. Though she is your partner, and this word partner is a very important word. In Daniel 2.17, it's a word used for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and David, and Daniel. They were partners. It's a word used for the closest kinds of relationships. Your bosom buddy, your pal, for 50 years. There's your partner. That's your wife. And Malachi is saying, what are you thinking? You'd betray the partner of your youth? This one who's so close to you, you find the same language used in Proverbs 2.17 for marriage. Partner, buddy, pal, soulmate. That's the irony of what Amy Grant was saying. She left her soulmate. She didn't find her soulmate. She left one, the partner of her youth. And we display our loyalty to solemn oaths and covenants, the wife of your marriage covenant. So when when we display our commitment to our marriage covenant, we display our commitment to all the commitments that we make. And once again, can you imagine making a stronger commitment, a stronger verbal commitment in your life anywhere than the one you make when you stand up, most of you in a church? In front of a preacher, with an open Bible, with all these guests gathered, in the name of God, you swear your allegiance to this woman regardless of the circumstances. Can you imagine a moment in your life when you ever made a clear statement about your intention to stick to your word? And when we blow it, we really blew it. And you can make all the excuses you want to about how lousy she is, and she did, she burned your toast and didn't give you sex and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but basically, you made a, a covenantal commitment. And you basically showed that the words that you said, which were something like this, I take you to be my wedded wife and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. That's what you said. Or something equivalent to it. Publicly. Solemn oaths before God and these witnesses. You break that. What wouldn't you you break? That's the point Malachi is making. Is that our personal integrity has holes shot through all, all through it. And you say, boy, Wilson, you made me feel miserable again. Once again, there's a way out of this. Just confess what you did. And come clean. Make restitution for whatever... Breaking of whatever covenant you broke. And let's get on with it. If you're remarried, let's have the greatest marriage you've ever had in your life. The greatest marriage you could possibly ever have. And let's be fair and just and equitable all to people. And let's wait for time to restore your reputation. That's the way it always works. Let's do it that way. Let's not pick some other way, which is normally, well, everybody does it. So now you're defending yourself. That's the way you're going to do it. You can pretend that you didn't do what the Bible said you did. That's the way you're going to deal with health. That's not healthy. That's just defending yourself. So let's come clean. Let's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our righteousness. Let's pick up where, where we are today and let's happily go on. That's what I have to do every day of my life. So we our marital integrity then uh, reveals our personal integrity. C, our marital integrity advances our life's mission. He says that why did he want us to do this? Uh, he said because he was seeking. He says, has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? because he was seeking godly offspring, verse 15. So God has a reason for your marriage. There are really three reasons, three purposes in marriage. The first one we can mention, which has to do with ourselves, is for the welfare and happiness of humankind. God really does want you to be happy, but He wants you to be happy in His way. He doesn't want you to decide what makes you happy. He wants you to decide to follow Him and find your happiness in following Him. That's what He wants. And for the general happiness of humankind, He's made us male and female. He, made, he gave us the institution of marriage and He made it permanent for our happiness. That's great. Praise the Lord. Secondly, He gave us marriage as an analog by which we can understand His relationship with us. So for those of you who have great marriages, you have a very uh, imperfect taste of the relationship between Christ and the church and how much He loves you. If you have a really great marriage, you have just a faint taste of how much He loves you. If you feel like this morning, you really love your wife a lot, it's a faint tasting of how much He loves you. But it's useful as a faint tasting of how much He loves you. If your wife really, really loves you and is devoted to you, you have a faint tasting of how the church is supposed to be responding to her bridegroom. Just a faint tasting of it. That's a picture that's given for us and for the, for the world to see the relationship between Christ and his people. That's the reason that the maintenance of marriage in a society is important. Because it is an enduring symbol of Christ's love for the church and his church, church's undying love for her Savior. So when we lose, when marriage is dissolved and we can't figure out what, for which genders it, it's meant, then, uh, you know, that it's supposed to be a, a man and a woman. I know that comes as a credible revelation to you this morning. But it is meant to be a man and a woman. We can't even figure out that much. And then we can't figure out that it's permanent. Uh, and then we can't figure out that it's to be treasured. You know, we're losing something about the relationship between God and redeemed sinners. So that's the reason it's important. That's the second purpose is to display God's relationship with us. And the third one is right here. This is the way people are discipled. It's kind of scary, isn't it? If you look at the divorce rate uh, over the past century, in 1920, it was one one divorce for every seven marriages. 1940, it was one divorce for every six marriages. By 1977, it was uh, one divorce for every two marriages. I don't know where we are now. Uh, But it's just been exponential through the 20th century. As many, many things were happening, the family was dissolving. And then, of course, we know all the social implications of this. You end up with kids who grow up fearful. The guys don't have a dad. Many of you did not have a dad who stuck with you and was loyal to you. You know you struggled, especially in your early adulthood, to figure out what it means to be a man. You didn't have someone who was closely bound to you as your father, who was showing you these things and giving you the courage and self-confidence to know how to stand up and be a man in the right moments without being violent. And so the only other reaction to be a man is to be violent because you don't know what the constraints are and you don't have the self-confidence that's necessary. Your father gives that to you. The key role of the father for the son is to show him how to be a man and give him confidence that he is a man and has that place in life. The key role for the father with a daughter is to show her how valuable she is and how she is to respect herself and to be treated by other men. And so... What you want to do as a father of daughters is show your daughter how she is supposed to be loved. Show her what the appropriate boundaries are. Show her how to build a good relationship with the opposite gender. You're it. You're, sh- you're dating your daughter. You're showing her how to relate to the opposite gender. And when she comes along and looks for a man, if she's had a great relationship with you, what do you think the standard is? Well, I know in some of your cases That's kind of scary. but uh, <clears throat> No, I'm only teasing. It really is. It's great. Her standard is you. And not to be moralistic about it so that she's never satisfied because she can't find anybody as great as her dad. But her dad does set a standard. And that dad who loves her shows her that men can be trusted. So many women are distrustful of men right now. And marriages are very difficult. I'm involved with so many marital cases where the woman doesn't trust the man. And all I have to do is take about three minutes and find out about her relationship with her father. Of course, she doesn't trust men. Why would she trust her husband? She didn't trust her father. He, he betrayed her. So you have all these key dynamic relationships that take place with the father in the home. And this is exactly this is what Malachi is saying. This is what I intended. This is not a result of new psychological studies that have come out in the past two years. This is ancient wisdom. That God puts us in families so that we are raising disciples of Jesus Christ. We're raising godly offspring. And we do not have godly offspring when our families are destroyed and men decide that their sex life or, their, or some other pleasure in their life is to be found somewhere else. And they give up the next generation. A man who really loves God and loves his fellow man is a man who's willing to lay down his life for the next generation. And if you don't think that your marriage is worth keeping for the sake of the children, if you think that's passe, Then you got another thought coming because the Bible says that's not passe. That is a good reason to keep your marriage going, and not just when they're fifteen, but when they're thirty-five. Sometimes parents have been amazed that the twenty-five-year-old children are just broken up because their children broke, their parents broke up. Of course they're broken up because you're always their parents. They're always looking to you, even as young adults. They're looking to you. You make a difference. So God says, "Look, I put you in covenants. I did it intentionally." Because I'm looking at the next generation and I happen to know as the God and creator of this universe, that's the best way to rear children. Once again, you say, what do I do? I screwed up. Well, here's what you do. You acknowledge your sin. You ask for forgiveness. Again, this morning, if you need to. You say, Lord, would you please show me how to live my life? And let's just assume you've been married three times and you have children from each marriage. Okay? That's a common thing. And somebody in this room surely fits that bill. What do you do? You... Pledge yourself to every one of those children. Every one of them. And they may have a stepfather, but you're the natural father. And you let them know that the natural father loves them. They may have some boundaries on you. They may be resentful toward you. You wait and be patient. Don't make an excuse and say, well, little Joe, you know, he doesn't want to even see me. Oh, yes, he does too. He's just so damned angry right now that he wants to act as though he doesn't want to see you. And He wants you to hang in there and let Him be angry at you long enough until you can get this thing resolved. And you need to be in there long enough and let Him stay angry at you. So you work it out. Every one of those natural children need to know that they have a natural father who knows that he messed up and who loves his children. And that divorce is not their fault. That's what they all think. They all think it's their fault. And when you absent yourself from your natural children, you only verify in their minds that they're the reason for that divorce. So you plug yourself back in. Secondly, you not only do that with all your children, to whatever degree you can do it, but secondly, you are sure that equity prevails with all of your former wives. And you basically say to them, do you have what you need? Am I abiding by the court orders? Have I given you what is just? Most guys will go to court and it gets very adversarial very fast because she hires some highfalutin divorce lawyer, you hire some higherfalutin divorce lawyer, and they're going at it in court. And nobody has the common sense to say, time out, technical foul, then time out, both the T's. Let's stop just a minute. Let's figure out what's fair and what what she needs. I don't want to just defend my estate. I want to help take care of somebody. Now, I know everybody's not reasonable. And I'm not against lawyers, and I'm not against civil divorce cases. It is a legal act, too. So you need to do that right, but you need to be sure it's fair and equitable. And whatever terms you come up with, you abide by them, and she doesn't have to send you a nasty note or email to get her money every month. So there's an equitable dealing with everybody involved. That's the way, if you're repentant of whatever failure was in your mind and heart, you look for the way to be equitable in all those relationships. And you don't have to do this feeling guilty. Christ has paid for all your sins. You're a free man. And free men are the ones who know how to love the best. Guilty men never really learn how to love. But if you know you're free from all your sins, you are not condemned. Now you can live out a healthy life as a former husband. So those are some of the things that you do because God is looking for godly offspring. So you just do the best you can. But that's the reason that if you're in your marriage, that you want to stay in it. And you say, what if there are no kids? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're getting to that. D, our marital integrity flows from our spiritual maturity. So guard yourself in your spirit. What he's saying is this starts in your heart. It starts in your spirit. There is a, uh, a researcher named Gottman, Dr. Gottman from University of Washington. Brent Stenberg has quoted him before, and I've heard him say it, who says that research shows that two thirds of marital problems are insoluble. <laughs> they, can't be, they can't be solved. Is this not a relief? I mean, I thought I was supposed to work all this stuff out. No, it, can't, it cannot be solved. The two-thirds of the problems that Allison and I have cannot be solved in terms of our coming to terms with them, each of us making the changes that are necessary to get this show going in the right direction. Now, that's a relief because that's exactly what it seemed like to me to be. <laughs> I would have probably said three-fourths or 80%, something like that. So don't get your hopes up in solving all your problems. Guard your heart. Just guard your spirit. Are you going to demand absolutely reasonable behavior on all of your disagreements with your spouse? Well, then you're not going to be a very happy man or you're going to be a disobedient man because you're going to divorce her because you can't get them solved. So just guard your heart. And spiritual maturity goes a long way. Emotional immaturity contributes mightily to divorces. You have two people who are emotionally immature, whose needs are so high that it just... What it, when she does something, it just trips, sends him right you know, out of the uh, through the roof and vice versa. You get a lot of emotional immaturity that causes marriages to fall apart and spiritual maturity does the same thing. People who don't take up their cross, deny themselves and follow him. And you can't have a uh, you can't be successful in marriage unless you're taking up your cross. Our marital integrity causes our God's pleasure because he says, I hate divorce. And, and I hate a man's covering himself with the violence. What does that mean when he says I hate a man covering himself with the violence? He's saying basically, I hate divorce just like I hate a guy who beats a guy to within an inch of a death and then takes his bloody garments, rips him off, takes his bloody garments and wears them to work the next day. He said, I hate that too. So he's basically saying that's what divorce is like. You just beat her up, took the bloody garments and used them to go to work the next day. He said, I hate that. This abuse and violence of another person. So a divorce is violent. Now, divorce means literally a putting away. So, although I'm not saying that, uh, that the two are equivalent, there is a form of sort of putting away your wife, pushing her off, keeping her at arm's length, not developing uh, a, an intimate relationship with her because of things on your part. Either it's punitive behavior or you're mad at her or whatever, and you just keep putting her off. And what Malachi is saying is that's, that's violent behavior. Because a woman's self-esteem is not based on how well she's doing in the marketplace and whether she brings home six figures uh, from work. That doesn't affect her self-esteem. It affects your self-esteem. doesn't affect her self-esteem. Her self-esteem is based on how she's doing in her key relationships. And primarily what she thinks you think of her is the key thing that has to do with her self-esteem. Now, you're not very happy if you don't think she doesn't think highly of you, doesn't make your day, but you get over it quite fine. You go off to work and you'll forget about it for, for a while and compartmentalize your life and go on and come home to your unhappy wife and deal with that again. So you, you manage. Well, she doesn't manage because she thinks about that not only at 7 o'clock in the morning, but 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock because her whole life is based upon her success in her key relationships, like with her father and now with you. So that relationship has a whole lot more to do with her life than it does with your life. And she feels that relationship a whole lot more than you do because she's holistic in her life. All of life is about relationships. So it's very violent when we put off, either emotionally put off or certainly divorce. It's a very violent act toward a woman. We have shamed her and disrespected her in a key way. So God made us for marriage, he instituted marriage, he defines marriage, he regulates marriage, and he says, go for it, boys. Now, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, uh, it's written for you there. And by the way, this is a second Presbyterian Church version of it. And I believe in italics are the parts that we have kind of rewritten our session, rewrote it. So that probably is a form of arrogance with a 500 year old document but we felt there were some things that probably need to be restated and put in clear tones, and so we did. But I think it's faithful to the spirit of the Confession of Faith. The Confession of Faith teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman. It is designed for the mutual help of each. In paragraph 2 there, it's for the propagation or adoption of children and the rearing of them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And in paragraph 3, the most common... uh, uh, Compatibility is a common Christian faith and a deeply shared intention of building a Christian home. In paragraph four, uh, the distinctive contribution uh, of the church is to bless that marriage, to hear the vows that are taken as a covenant and to assure the married partners of God's grace within their new relationship. In paragraph five, it is the divine intention that the covenant be in the covenant relationship be inseparable, except for. Death. Okay, if she dies, you're free. But you can't kill her. (laughs) Um, And then also, uh, you see in the italics, that also adultery and prolonged, irremediable, willful desertion, which cannot be remedied in any way by the church, is an allowable grounds for divorce. You'll find that in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7 where Jesus Christ Himself gives adultery as grounds for a divorce. You're not a second-class citizen if you sue for a divorce when your wife's committed adultery. That's a legitimate ground for divorce. You don't have to get divorced. And we don't recommend necessarily you get divorced. Uh, and if it's a one-night stand, you probably shouldn't get divorced out of Christian wisdom, especially if there are children involved. But you can get divorced, and you're not a second-class citizen if you do, because the Bible warrants it, and it never gives you a warrant to become a second-class citizen. And if it's prolonged desertion. But notice in the confession of faith, we say it cannot be remedied by the church. Why do we say that? Because guys have a history. They're very famous for creating all kinds of reasons why they think they should be able to get a divorce. You need to refer defer to a third party. And that third party ought to be the institution of the church, which has the sacred oracles, the Bible, and they're seeking God's will just as you are. And you should be able to trust your brothers to make a judgment in your own case. So you don't make a judgment in your own case. If you have friends who are thinking about a divorce, say, you know what? You need a Bible-believing church that really believes in doing things correctly. Get the elders to get with you and see if they can come up with a judgment in this matter. And that's what we recommend all of our people to do. We have divorces in our church, but we recommend that they all submit to a process whereby third parties uh, are being involved. Then, of course, the remarriage of divorced persons, uh, paragraph six, may be sanctioned by the church uh, after each person's eligibility and suitability for marriage is determined. Now, lastly, let's ask some questions. Can, can a man ever be legitimately divorced? We said yes under two circumstances, either divorce or gross, I mean, adultery or gross sexual immorality. And that would take a while to define, perhaps, or desertion prolonged, irremediable, willful desertion that cannot be remedied by a third party, a godly third party, where the third party makes a declaration to you, you know what, brother? You have truly been deserted. You have grounds for divorce. Let somebody else give you that judgment. Don't make it in your own case. What should I do, secondly, if my marriage is threatened with divorce? Get counsel. Don't use the D word. And if someone uses it, you might say, you know what? I think this conversation has gotten to the point where we need some help. We really do. Let's go see the pastor or a counselor. Thirdly, if I'm divorced, should I be, re- be remarried? Uh, here's my, my best thinking on this, I think, after looking at the Scriptures for several years. What you want to determine after your, after your divorce is if you have what we call lingering obligations. For example, if you were married and you and your spouse decided we have some just incompatibility, we are just not getting along and you wrongly decide to get a divorce. So now you're divorced and you're single. The Bible would say you have a lingering obligation to remain single or to be remarried to your spouse. 1 Corinthians 7.14, I think it is. It's somewhere there in chapter 7, where Paul says, don't get a divorce, but if you do, here again, God's so gracious he tells you what to do after you disobey him. (laughs) If you do get a divorce, then remain single or be reconciled to your partner. That's the advice in 1 Corinthians 7. So we use that principle to say, in any case where you have lingering obligations to return to your spouse, you are not to be remarried. So if it's an unbiblically, uh, if it's an unbiblical divorce or not warranted biblically, then you have lingering obligations to go back. Let's say that you're, you're divorced, uh, without a biblical warrant. You're both single. Divorcees. She marries another man. Now you're free because you have no lingering obligation. You should never return to her. She's remarried. You wanted to have a good marriage to him. So now you're free. Now, that leads to all kinds of ethical questions. And you can submit those to me in email if you'd like to. And uh, I've got my email there at the bottom and ask me questions about this. But that's the general principle. Does divorce disqualify me from membership or leadership in the church? It certainly does not disqualify you for membership. The church is made up of a whole bunch of sinners who have committed every, uh, sins against every one of God's laws, including the sin of, of adultery or divorce. So come on in, join the rest of us. We're all trusting in Jesus. Now, what about leadership? Uh, if it's ordained leadership, you need to have what, what is known by the Apostle Paul as a healthy reputation. No handle on you, literally, in the Greek. Uh, this is from 1 Timothy 3. So if you have a reputation as a result of your divorce, and believe me, you always do, you need a time to restore that reputation, deal with your past, be sure that the church knows that you stand for biblical principles, even in your own case when you failed, all kinds of things. And it just takes a while. So usually you do, you're not restored right away to leadership. And in our church, whenever anyone... Uh, gets involved in a public divorce, they immediately step down from all forms of public leadership, including teaching Sunday school. It's no indictment against anybody. It's just saying, look, you're involved in a public uh, thing. Why don't you just pull back from leadership? So that's usually wise to do. And it makes it easier for you to deal with your own case when you don't have the added pressure of leadership. Lastly, how do I divorce-proof my marriage? Well... I'm going to say two things. One is stay connected to Jesus Christ. He is really your only hope and stay. There's no woman in this world who's good enough to keep you excited about marriage every day. Either that or you're a real blockhead and blind to a lot of things. There's no woman in the world who can do that. So stay connected to Jesus Christ. He is great enough to keep you inspired about your marriage every day. He is great enough to do that. And He will if you stay connected to Him in faith. Secondly, do your best to stay connected to your wife. Don't put her off. Find different ways in recreation, social outings, conversations. Yes, words. Communicating. Yes. Stay connected to her. Stay connected to her in in the sharing of your affection for her. Stay connected to her in giving her gifts, whatever her love language is. Figure it out. Stay connected to the best of your ability. So those are two key things. And in order to stay connected to her... You've got to be getting your resources from Christ who's staying connected to you. He loves you in spite of your old self. He's continuing to love you. And you can take that love he gives you and give it right over to her. Okay, we're now officially not a half week behind, but one full week. And we'll pick up right there next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for making covenant with us through Jesus Christ. A covenant that cannot and will not be broken. Because it's made by the very blood of Jesus Christ and sworn by his name. And we pray that as we go from here, you'll help us to live out the meaning of that covenant with you in all of our relationships with other human beings. And especially for those of us who are married with that woman with whom we swore our covenant faithfulness years ago. Help us all. We are in need of your grace. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. God bless you.